0: in the early 50s you predicted that the world was becoming a global village we're going back into the bicameral mind which is tribal collective without any individual consciousness but it seems Dr. McLuhan that this this, this tribal world is not friendly oh no tribal people uh, one of their main uh, kinds of sport is uh, sort of butchering each other it's, you know, it's, a, it's a full-time sport in tribal societies but I had some ideas. We got global and tribal. We, you know, we were going the to come the closer you get together, the more you like each other. Yeah, there's no evidence of that in any situation that we we've ever heard of. That when people get close together, they get more and more uh, savagely uh, impatient with each well, other. Well, why is that? Because of the nature of man, or, yeah, or his tolerance is uh, tested in that in those narrow circumstances very much. Village people aren't that much in love with each other. And the Global Village is a place of very arduous interfaces and very abrasive situations.
1: Love is more than just something. Love just doesn't last from day to one You say you love me Say talking is cheap
2: If you love me Hear what I say Love can be shown
3: I disagree with that idea that talk is cheap. On one hand, I understand, you know, just saying things, not walking the talk, when you just talk and you don't walk, that is very cheap, and it doesn't get you anywhere. But, you know, I've, I've also talked a lot. I've talked... Uh, but I also feel like I've walked it as well i've I've walked talked it on this show on night school about how you know repeating something over and over again or thinking the same sort of thought and especially verbalizing it does have an effect. It becomes a mantra it doesn't have to be some archaic, some weird esoteric thing you read in a in a spiritual book in some scripture, something that some master taught you. It doesn't have to be that. In order, to be, in order to become a mantra. It literally could be anything that you just repeat often enough that it, if not creates a certain reality, if it doesn't manifest a certain reality, at the very least it reinforces it. And at that point, what is the difference between reinforcement and just straight-up manifestation? Uh, you know, you're maintaining a manifestation, which to me is the same thing as actually manifesting it. Uh, but, you know, in that way, talk isn't very cheap. And I see that a lot, you know, especially with the uh, younger people today, where they almost have to start every conversation with something about the sorry state of the world, like where it's just people I like, too. It's it's people I like and I feel like otherwise have a lot to add to the world and a lot to offer, even, even just with their talk. Uh, they'll start almost every conversation these days with some sort of oh, well, uh, the world sucks. It sucks. The world sucks. Uh, You you know, the world's garbage right now, but, you know, I'm doing okay. And it's like, well, if you're doing okay, how garbage could the world really be? And I use the word garbage very specifically here, because I hear that word a lot. And I've talked about littering on here, where, you know, litterers... It's not that they think that they themselves are some pure entity when they litter, and they just got to get rid of this garbage. Oh, I'm walking around. I'm an angel. I'm a pure angel, an untainted being, and I just, I got to get rid of this Cheeto bag. It's that they themselves feel like garbage. They see the world as garbage, and so in throwing a piece of garbage down onto the earth, they're basically a piece of garbage throwing a piece of garbage into a pile of more garbage. And if you see somebody litter, which is pretty rare for me, I don't often see somebody litter, but some of the times you know, when you actually do see the act of littering, it's amazing how miserable they look. They don't look like happy people, and there's a reason why most litter is, is just the worst possible product. You know, there's a reason why litter is the worst food, like the most, the nastiest food you could possibly eat. It's all junk food, as they call it. I mean, big surprise, when people throw garbage around, it's junk food, junk. The word junk is even in the type of food that you often see, uh, the packaging for food that you see littered. So junk and garbage, it's just ingrained in the whole process. And those people themselves, they hate their lives. You don't litter if you're a happy person. And the people I'm talking about, you know, aren't litterers. They're not people who are nasty in that sense. Uh, They don't treat the world like it's garbage. And there's this weird moral signaling that goes along with what I'm talking about when people have to preface everything they say. Well, the world sucks, but, oh, it sucks, everything sucks. But uh, it's just a weird sort of mantra they repeat. And it does reinforce a bad worldview. And even if they feel they're just describing things how they are, they're just telling it like it is, you know, they are reinforcing, you know, a certain manifestation, and in doing so, they are manifesting something, they are creating something, or destroying for that matter. And and it goes along with, you know, when someone's depressed, you know, it's very difficult to be friends with somebody who's depressed, not because they're depressed, but because you can't bring anything good into the situation and this isn't some criticism of depression or blaming people for their own depression or however however else someone wants to distort what i'm saying what i'm saying is that you know it's almost like you have to you know start every sentence with some kind of gloom it's like you have to lube everything up with gloom that gloom lube and if not you know and i'm not even saying you have you know Because you shouldn't go up to anybody, really, and just be like, Hey, have you heard how great things are? Have you heard how great my life is? Because you're just asking for it at that point. At the very least, you're asking for that person to just shut you out. Or, if not that, you're asking for some kind of, like, Book of Job-level devastation in your life, where it's like, oh, you think things are so good, huh? Well, Let me take away everything you love and see if you still uh, feel so pious because uh, the book of Job if you're unfamiliar uh, is a, is a, about that it's about a guy who is very pious and he loves God and he you know he, he feels at one uh, with existence and you know Lucifer convinces God to start fucking him over really bad because the idea is oh you know he he's praising you he's praising God and and you know his life and he's living the, in in this great this grand state of piety. But let's see what happens when we, you know, take that away, when we give him boils on his flesh and we kill his family. Let's see if he still praises God then. So I feel like if you're out there and you're just like, Why doesn't everybody feel great? Why doesn't everybody have such a you know, just a a beautiful understanding of of what it means to be alive? When you do that, you're asking to be treated like Job you know? So I'm not saying to go around doing that. But sometimes when you're dealing with somebody who is just very miserable, let's just put it that, let's get away from classifications and just say very miserable. If you even approach them with neutrality, they reject it or or see it as suspect. So you have to be very careful. And I'm not saying you should shut these people out of your life or anything like that, because I mean, I think miserable people often have a, a great insight uh, hence, being miserable it's not some being miserable isn't some act of stupidity or ignorance it 's often somebody who's just immersed themselves in you know in hard truths you know so it's just it's a it's a dangerous game because you want to balance you know being true and taking in the truths that are out there in the world, no matter how bad they can be uh you want to balance that with. You know, also having some sort of productive or, you know, functional mindset. You want to bring about good things or at the very least not reinforce the bad things. So it's, just, it's difficult. And mantras play a large role. And this thing that I see these days where, you know, young people are like, they have to preface everything with how much everything sucks right now. And they have it pretty good. And they feel guilty about having it good. And if they don't see how good they have it, that's an even bigger problem. And that's not to say they don't have problems, you know, but this idea that you have to start everything with some sort of, you know, down note, and it's, it's taken on this weird form of, it's almost a form of punctuation, or uh, it reminds me of people just saying good morning to each other, because you don't think about what that actually means. When you say good morning to somebody, you're not actually saying, what a good morning. Oh, it's such a good morning. It's just, you know, some people have, you know, cut just cut it all out, and they just say, morning, morning. I'm acknowledging that it's morning. Uh, But even saying good morning to most people, they're not saying, what a good morning, or isn't this morning good? Isn't this morning good? They're not saying that. They're just giving this weird, it's it's almost like punctuation. it's, It's a basic level of acknowledgement. And it makes me think of, you know, on The Sopranos, there was the, the guy who dates Tony's sister. I think they met in AA or some sort of group, and he's a born-again Christian, and he starts every conversation with, have you heard the news? And people say, no. And he says, he is risen. And you see cults develop that sort of language where, you know, people develop this insular you know form of communication where they start every uh, every conversation with something like that, something kind of esoteric. And uh, usually it has some sort of purpose, you know, when, when a religious person starts a sentence like that. And it's, it really, you know, pushes you away. But I do feel that this has become almost religious. The way people have to constantly talk about this sorry state of the world that apparently, I don't even know. Because I'm not even going to say it is a sorry state. And I know what they mean, because usually what they mean when someone's like, oh, well, you know, the world's garbage, and but I'm doing okay. What they're saying is, I don't like the president. I'm scared of uh, global warming. That's what they're saying. I don't like kids in cages at the border. That's usually what they're saying. But they'll find a reason to say it about almost anything, because uh, they don't feel good. And you know, with the whole global warming thing that's weighing on everybody's heads, and I'm just done calling it global warming, I'm done calling it climate change, we're talking about the apocalypse. You know, let's just use the universal term that everybody's always known it by. You know, it's what appears in scriptures, this day of reckoning, this Ragnarok, the end of the Kali Yuga, this apocalypse. Apocalypse is easy to understand. Everybody who's ever heard the word apocalypse defined remembers it, and they know what you're talking about, and they don't argue about its meaning. So whether you believe in this impending apocalypse that's, you know, coming up these days, you know, it's around the corner 10 minutes from now, whatever it is, whenever they say the icebergs are going to melt, whenever they say the ice in your drink is going to melt, uh, oh, you think you think the iceberg is going to melt? Well, uh, you know, the ice in my drink hasn't melted yet. I can still make ice in my freezer. I ain't worried. Um, And so it's like, not even like I'm downplaying that concern because I understand why people are freaking out. I really do. Uh, I understand. But I'm going to call it the apocalypse from now on. And it doesn't matter whether someone's, you know, the born again Christian who actually believes in some sort of supernatural apocalypse with a. you know, a left-behind sort of scenario where some people are going to be going up to heaven, some people are going to be staying on earth uh, to deal with the flood, you know. Whether you believe in that or whether you are some intellectually sound, pro-science, you know, uh, secular atheist who also believes in the apocalypse. It doesn't matter what your belief is. There's a lot of people out there who believe in the apocalypse, and it's funny they all argue with each other over it, and they all have different terms for it. It's just funny, but I'm I'm just calling it the apocalypse from now on. That's it, that's it. Um, uh, you know it just sure sucks. That the apocalypse is around the corner, but uh, you know uh, I'm doing all right. Let me complain to you about uh work. Let me talk to you about TV. TV. I don't know. But back to what I was saying originally, uh, talk is cheap. You know, so you can see where where talk is both cheap and it's not because. You know, it does have an impact on your view, on—it impacts the people, your, your relationships to people, the way that you communicate with them. And when you create a weird little community where everybody is repeating something, where everybody has these shared mantras of impending doom, that's going to have an impact on you and everybody that your little group of people interacts with. And now in this, this time of—I don't even know—I don't even want to call them tribes— I don't even want to call these these groups that are forming and, you know, breaking off and, you know, banding together on these cellular levels. I don't even want to call them tribes, but it does, you know, they do take on tribal characteristics. I just don't think they're as natural and uh, dependable as a tribe is, you know, because you think about a tribe, those occur, you know, it's kinship that's surviving against the odds of nature. That's what a tribe. That's that's why tribes exist, in their you know purest form. Uh, so I don't like calling these new political social groups tribes, although that's what they're mimicking. They're mimicking those sorts of tendencies, and they all have their own mantras, and a lot of their talk is cheap. But some of it is a, for it, for all, as cheap as their talk is, it also has a heavy heavy weight, heavy price. There we go. I should have said that. So yeah, before that song, which was beautiful, I, I can't believe I'm still talking 17 minutes after it. Uh, but, uh, you know, the beautiful Rob Dante song, Talk is Cheap, uh, one that I have wanted to open the show with for a long time now. Just that beautiful harmony that comes in about midway through the the hook. Uh, but not predictable, you know, based on the way the song starts, I would not expect, you know, that that sublime of a harmony. Uh, I just would not have expected it And uh, before that though uh, The opening dialogue was by Marshall McLuhan A Canadian thinker from, uh, from the past That clip was from 1977 And you might hear it and think Oh, he's ahead of his time You hear that? He's talking about how the world's reverting back How the closer together we are You know, the more we revert back to this angry, violent tribalism He's ahead of his time and it's true, you know, I think that he was on to something with that thought. I think that the closer together we become, the more we do revert back to something like that. And I say like that because as I was saying, I don't feel like we are, you know, actually becoming tribal again. I don't feel like we deserve to be called tribes. I feel like there is something, you know, much more ancient and necessary about true tribalism. I feel like we are these poor parodies of tribes. And uh, you can see it in the way that people turn on each other for the smallest things. You know, because the thing that sucks, but is also beautiful about a real tribe, is they will protect their own against outsiders, even when their own are despicable. And that sucks, but it's also, you know, there's a beauty to it. Uh, there's a sense of loyalty, but they will, per- you know, if if somebody within their tribe gets accused of something, you know, they will protect them because they are a member of their tribe. Being accused by somebody from outside the tribe, and you do see that these days, but you just see so much infighting. Uh, you see so much, you know, cannibalism. Uh, you know, mental, psychic cannibalism among these newer so-called socio-political tribes. I don't think they deserve to actually be called tribes. But, you know, you could say that Marshall McLuhan was ahead of his time, but I always hate when people say that. I always hate when people are like, oh, I read 1984, and it described exactly what's going on now. 1984, it's so much like, where have you heard this before? Reminds me of when I read 1984. It Reminds me of 1984. You know, people who say that are, you know, just... You know where they're coming from and I'm not judging them even though I'm I clearly am but I'm just going to preface it by saying, you know, cuz talk is cheap so I'm just going to say something that's not true like I'm not judging them and then launch into just a caustic harsh judgment of them. Uh but uh You know, it is that thing where you hear that a lot these days where, you know, it's the same sort of people who are, like, just devastated every four years when the wrong guy gets elected. And it's like, kind of reminds you in 1984, doesn't it? And it's like, you could go to any point in history and feel like you're in 1984. You could go to 1877 and, you know, feel immediately like you're experiencing 1984 all over again. You go to any country in the world at any point throughout its history and you're going to feel like you're in 1984. Because the entire idea of a nation or or a group organized on that level where there's a government, the entire premise of that, the entire premise of a government existing is going to remind you of 1984. At any point throughout history, doesn't matter if it's the Middle Ages or tomorrow, uh, it doesn't matter it's it, you're going to find something that reminds you of george oh it's kind of orwellian it, it's that's such you know you know fluff i hate saying that word fluff uh let's cut that out uh it, it it's so hollow let's go with that i prefer hollow i like the word hollow uh, it, it's such a hollow excuse for some kind of actual cultural or political commentary, like making the Orwellian comparison or, you know, whatever, you know, and he was obviously, you know, when he wrote that book, it's not like he was a prophet. He was just riffing on things he had observed about human nature, at least human nature when it's organized, uh, you know, to the degree that we have been organized the last hundreds of years, thousands of years. Like I said, you go to any point in history, you go to any ancient empire and, you know, be like, oh, this, this is exactly like 1984. You could watch them build the pyramids and be like, this is kind of Orwellian. Because there's something about when humans are organized on a large level and things get this complex. There's a tendency to police language. And in doing so, you end up uh, controlling people's thoughts. It, all this stuff just, it plays out everywhere all the time. So you could really just pinpoint it everywhere and anywhere. And you could do it, too, with these observations about, oh, the world's garbage. The world's in this garbage place. But anyway, I should I should just go on. My point is just that, you know, I think what Marshall McLuhan was saying in that clip is very relevant to now. But I think he was saying it then because it was relevant then. And it was relevant before he said that. It was relevant before he even thought that. And other people have thought that always. You know, it's like uh, it's not that people are ahead of their time it's that things remain pretty similar. Things don't change that much. And yeah, sometimes humanity does dip into you know, a much more extreme state of brutality, and we should never take for granted whatever peace we currently have. I'm not saying things don't get worse and can't be much worse, and that you shouldn't comment on that, or you shouldn't be aware of it, or you shouldn't be aware of things heading in that direction. I think it's very important to do that. But I think that uh, the general tendencies of people are always there. So when we think things are ahead of their time or that this is that, you just have to remember that there's more consistency than there is not. And you could really you know, pull up any example and say, doesn't it kind of remind you of this? Doesn't Justin Bieber kind of remind you Elvis? Elvis was so ahead of his time. You know, he's, he's so much like Justin Bieber. You, know, you could do that about anything, I feel like. Once you've blown your mind enough Once you've let your mind get blown enough You can do that You can just find parallels between everything But talk is cheap Apparently, because I'm going I'm just not stopping here I thought this was going to be an every night's a school night episode This is why I don't do these Because I just talk (laughs) I don't play music Um, uh, Talk is cheap Just so you know, talk is cheap what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to talk about it? Are you going to talk? Why don't you lunge at me? Are you going to keep talking? Why don't you lunge at me? Be like a pit bull. Why don't you lunge at me like a pit bull? Oh my God. What the fuck are you doing? You're lunging at me. What are you doing? You just lunged at me. I'm going to call the co-ops. Yeah, I got this guy here. He just lunged at me. I, 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 all I said to him, officer, is talk is cheap, and he lunged at me. He thinks he's like half pit bull, half wolf. He's like the dog I had uh, growing up who was half pit bull, half wolf. You should have heard the thing, though. You know, I'll tell you what, when, it, when a half pit bull, half wolf is talking to you, talk ain't very cheap then. Just don't lunge at me, all right? Just Yeah, so we're going to play a song. Uh, it's not half pit bull. Uh, but it's part wolf it's Wolf Call by Billy Wallace
2: oh.
4: there's a wolf on the corner with a gleam in his eye he'll whistle at you as you walk back don't forget for one moment that you're mine or mine let him stand and whistle till he goes stone blind watch out don't fall beware Wolf Call, he'll walk up and say, now ain't your name Sue, he's just trying to make time with you, he knows that game babe from A to Z. always remember you belong to me, watch out, don't fall, beware, Wolf Call. try to tell you that he hung the moon Just remember that's an old, old tune You're mighty cute and you're mighty sweet Don't let him sweep you off your feet Watch out, don't fall Beware or call Listen to me, baby, let me tell you this Don't you even give him not the smallest kiss You know I love you and I'm jealous too Make him keep his distance away from you. Watch out, don't fall.
2: Beware, wolf
0: call.
4: You didn't know I wasn't free when you fell in love with me. And with all your young heart, you learned to care. It brought you shame and disgrace. The world has tumbled in your face. Cause they call out love a bad street affair. They say you wrecked my home. I'm a husband that's gone wrong. They don't know the sorrow that we've had to bear For the one I'm tied to was the first to prove untrue Now they call our love a backstreet affair have each other now that's all that matters anyhow for the judgment of gossip's never fair we'll just be brave and strong someday they'll see they're wrong let them call our love a back street affair when the mist rolls away, we'll be free to love someday and no happiness God meant for us to share. I'll climb a mountain, dear, shout so the world can hear that our love's not a back street affair.
3: Yeah, Wolf Call was followed up there with Backstreet Affair, also by Billy Wallace from 1952, quite a bit earlier than a lot of what I play on here. It almost feels like recorded music didn't exist before 1952. But Backstreet Affairs certainly did. Wolves did. Wolf Calls existed before 1952. I don't know about half pit bull, half wolf hybrids. Uh, they don't. They don't call though. They talk. <laughs> they just talk. Uh, but Backstreet Affairs. That's another one of those. You know, talking in the last segment about you know how certain things have just always existed throughout time, and uh, certain parallels always can be drawn between those things. Uh, You know, Backstreet Affairs. Those don't even need you to draw any parallel between ancient times and modern times, because it's just the same concept. People have always been running around in alleyways. People have always been uh, doing things they shouldn't with people they shouldn't. And uh, you know, just put to put it bluntly, infidelity is an invitation. It invites black magic into your life. It is an invocation and an uh, invitation. I was imagining that coming out so... I was imagining that just flowing out so perfectly. It is an invocation and an invitation. I believe it is, though. I truly believe that infidelity is a form of black magic, and it does invite darkness into your life, at the very least. Demonic darkness. And, you know, we live in this age where people are preaching polyamory and trying to play these things down and treat marriage like it's some sort of meaningless, archaic institution. And, you know, it's not like they don't have points. It's not like there isn't some truth behind some of that. But if you look at the reason these things evolved into what they are, into these institutions, it's like, what were they battling against? I don't believe it was some nefarious conspiracy just to control women or to enforce people, enforce some miserable monogamy, between people who don't love each other. I don't believe, you know, while that definitely happened and happens, I don't believe that's why marriage came to be. I don't believe that's why monogamy came to be. I don't believe that at all. I believe that people experienced some of this black magic that I'm referring to. And I won't go go into detail uh, too much, because I think people who know what I'm talking about simply know, whether it's from experience or observation I do think there is a black magic that comes into your life when you participate in anything that is underhanded and destructive to someone else, and infidelity certainly is that, and I'm not on some high horse here at all, I'm just speaking uh, what I consider a truth, and I think our our societies at this point now where we laugh about it, and we, we downplay it, And we do have, you know, all of these cultural countercurrents that are trying to, you know, make uh, free love some sort of standard again. But, you know, it's strange, you know, where you you have to look at it, too, and just say, like, so many deaths, not from the people just sleeping with people, of course— But so many deaths have happened because of this thing. And that's not even the black magic that I'm referring to. I'm actually referring to some kind of true, supernatural, demonic presence. And you don't have to believe me. I don't expect anybody to believe that. And I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it at that. (laughs) Uh, Some would even say you get a visit from the devil. Some people would say that you get a visit from a devil from the devil even, when you invite the black magic of infidelity into your life by either cheating or, uh, how to put it, um, I was going to say condoning or, you know, giving somebody else the opportunity to cheat by seducing somebody who maybe is involved with someone else. Uh, you know, I think either way, uh, you very well might get a visit from the devil in those circumstances, and you might not know that that devil has visited you until it's a little too late. But uh, it does happen, and fittingly, here's a song: Jack Leonard, A Visit from the Devil.
5: Short eyes ago I lived and walked this worldly way, but now six feet below the earth in a coffin cold I lay. They lowered me into this grave and filled the sod up level, and now I await my hellish fate a visit from the devil. Oh devil, why do you? torment me, my soul belongs to thee. I see you there, but your hands ain't bare. That bitch force aimed at me. Why did you have to come so soon? I'm not prepared to travel. But the way I've lived my life, I've heard a visit from the devil. The table stands where we dealt our hands. For that game of poker I held two aces and drew three cards A deuce, a queen, a joker I held my aces in one hand My best girl in the other But the best hand held a forty-four And it belonged to her brother Oh, devil, why do you torment me? My soul belongs to thee I see you there, but your hands ain't bare That pitchfork's aimed at me Why did you have to come so soon? I'm not prepared to travel But the way I've lived my life I've earned a visit from the devil I saw Satan grin at me as I felt that 44 his eyes beckoned me to come on in as he opened up his door that visit from the devil now leads me to believe that it was he who pulled that fifth ace from my sleeve oh devil why do you torment me? My soul belongs to thee. I see you there, but my hands ain't bare. That pitchfork's aimed at me. Why did you have to come so soon? I'm not prepared to travel. But the way I've lived my life, I've earned a visit from the devil.
0: When you live out on the frontier, you have no identity, you're a nobody, therefore you get very tough. You have to prove that you are somebody. And so you become very violent. And so identity is always accompanied by violence. This uh, it seems paradoxical to you, that uh, ordinary, ordinary people uh, find the need for violence as they lose their identities. So it's only the threat to people's identity that makes them in violence. Terrorists, hijackers, these are people minus identity. They are determined to make it somehow, to get coverage, to get noticed.
6: If you close your eyes, you might just think this teenager grew up on the inner city streets. But he didn't. Kyle Jones is from one of the most exclusive suburbs outside of Boston, Newton, Massachusetts. I don't want you to see me as that I'm trying to be black, or I'm trying to be like too hard, or like I'm a white kid trying to. be I just want you to look at me as me. Westside. Just like Kyle, millions of white suburban kids have adopted black urban culture as their own, even though the closest most have gotten to inner city life is watching the movie Boys in the Hood. They want to be like down at the black people and like want to be like us and like just want to be cool with us unless they try to like learn our music just like us. But do these kids want to be black?
5: It's what I am. I can relate to it. I know exactly what they're saying. It's it's just what it is.
6: What it is is upsetting suburban parents all over the country. They think it's ridiculous. And angering black teenagers. When a white person comes up to me and acts like
7: that with me, like they can rap better than me or they're more hardcore than me, the thing that I'm going to think of is that they think that they're more black than me. Even though it's stereotypical, I'm going to say this person thinks they're, they're... they're more black than I am and they're white. And that makes me
6: extremely upset. If they're kinda of overdoing them like, can you like calm down a little? You're not black, so just chill with that. And that's what I say because it kinda of gets annoying after a while. I am hip hop. That's what most white kids say when they're told they're acting black.
5: Doesn't make my parents angry or anything. They see it, this is how I want to dress. I'm just, when they were young, they were dressing their way.
6: But according to some teenagers, their parents aren't happy with the hip-hop look.
2: Why are you dress in such big clothes? Why don't you wear some that fits? I'm like, a comfortable, this so I'll do it. So, I had
7: met some people who introduced me to real Japanese animation, not the, oh, they're just robots or Sergeant Knox got out right behind you. The first surprise I got was, his characters are actually dying.
3: Yeah, characters were actually dying. He's talking about the Wiggers. He's not talking about anime. He's talking about the Wiggers from the previous clip. He He found an appreciation for the Wigger culture, subculture, when he found out they were actually dying. They are, though, actually. If you look at people from, you know, your high school or anything who have actually really fallen on hard times, a lot of them were the hardcore Wiggers, because there isn't much of a future in that, though, as I like to often repeat on here, speaking of, you know, my own mantras, one of them is that, you know, the people who stayed Wiggers forever, who are now in their 30, they're thirty 35, and they're pushing strollers, and they probably have a few kids now, you know, the ones who stayed in for the long haul. I like that. And the ones who were just committed even back then. I don't care what they're doing now, but I have an appreciation for the the Wiggers that we grew up with, that we all grew up with in the U.S. You know, because it really was a, a true phenomenon. You know, it was everywhere. It was all across the country. Everybody was exposed to rap and gangster rap, and we all had those kids, and they were all very similar. Even ones who never even heard of each other. You had them in Virginia, and you had them in Oregon, you had them everywhere. From Virginia to Oregon. From V to O. But uh, the ones who were just totally committed, because I was kind of afraid of them, because they were often kind of tough, or they were at least really good at making you think that was the case. But something I didn't like, and I still don't like, like it when I see it, is people who are kind of half committed. There were a lot of kids that I knew who were, and I feel like maybe I even fell into this for a little bit, but they were like, they wanted to seem just cool enough, so they kind of would occasionally talk in that sort of slang, that sort of lingo. They would occasionally talk like, you know, in, in some sort of rap slang. They would occasionally show off, you know, their taste in rap and urban culture, but they didn't commit like the wiggers did and so i appreciate that i appreciate that level of commitment no matter how much you want to judge them see them as you know some you know false creature to be criticized and made fun of and you know of course i'm making fun of them a little bit i'm not going to say i'm not but i do have this appreciation for their commitment to that craft to that craft of being that's living it you know, you can say talk is cheap, but, you know, nobody can say Wiggers didn't walk the walk because you could see him walking. And you could tell what they were going to, you knew what they were going to sound like before they even talked, you know. And, and that's that's what walking the walk is. Walking the walk is when people know kind of what you're all about before you even open your mouth. Uh, so I appreciate that, I do. And, you know, that was followed up with a little clip from the first guy who ever made an anime Fan music video, and he did it with VHSs in the '80s. VHS, uh, VCRs. Uh, he uh, d- he did it by bouncing anime clips from VCR to VCR and setting it to music. And he's exactly what you would expect him to look like. And he did this in you know basements, you know, of social clubs in New York City in the '80s. And, you know, I'm someone who was never an anime fan, but I do have this detached appreciation for it, especially uh, the earlier fans who are exactly what you'd expect them to be. But they're, once again, commitment. That's the theme here. These are people that I don't identify with. Wiggers, you know, hardcore anime fans from the 80s who had to, you know, trade tapes in basements. You know, I, I don't identify with them. But I appreciate their commitment, and I'm not even being facetious. I appreciate something about that. True people. And, you know, those, those are people, they had to do a lot of investigating, for one thing. You know, you had to do a lot of investigating on your own. Because that's the thing that's impressive. Like, I'm talking about the Wigger phenomenon and how it was nationwide, probably international. I'm sure it was international, which is even crazier. I know I've seen, like, you know, German Wiggers somewhere. I know that that's a thing, or was a thing. Uh, and the fact that it could become international is even more impressive. But, you know, how did they get that way? Because some kids just seem to know. They just seem to intuitively know. It's like they knew where to investigate. And what was worthy of investigation. Because that's the hardest part. Like, when you're getting into something, the hardest part is often, like, what do I even look at like if you're getting into a subject it's like you need some kind of guide and it doesn't matter what it is I mean you could be getting I remember getting into you know underground music and that kind of thing as a teenager and it's like you don't know where to begin even when the internet was I mean the internet was around while I was doing that and there were very few signposts you know you had to know somebody or just you know be very lucky to investigate in the right corners of the world And even then, you're not going to know what's good, you're not going to know what's the the gold standard, but I feel like Wiggers just kind of knew what the gold standard was. And the only real criticism you could have of them is that they're trying to be something they're not, which is why uh, I played that song Believe Me in the middle of all that. Believe me, it was by the Beverly Hills Painters, which is a very strange name for a group. The Beverly Hills Painters. I almost imagine they were guys who just worked for a painting company who sang while they painted. Painting mansions, because that's all Beverly Hills is, apparently. I feel like I might have passed through Beverly Hills, but I don't even know. I don't even know if I've been to Beverly Hills. Beverly Hills, I don't even know if I've been there Lunge at me, why don't you lunge at me I don't even know if I've been to Beverly Hills Oh my god, he lunged at me He lunged at me You know what we do in Beverly Hills when someone lunges at you? When they lunge at you like you're uh, half wolf, half pit bull We call the cops, we call the police In Beverly Hills, we don't waste no time We We don't try to play peacemaker If you lunge at me in Beverly Hills, I just call the police You know where you're going? You know where you're going if you lunge at me while I'm in the yard of my mansion, when I'm in the courtyard of my mansion, and my Beverly Hills painters are painting my house and singing. You know what? You know why you got to hire those Beverly Hills painters? Because they'll sing while they paint. And they got a song called Believe Me. It's about wiggers. It's about wiggers. It's about, uh, it's about being a fan of anime in the 80s. It's called Believe Me. To me, it is. It's about love or something. It's probably about infidelity, actually. Here I go. I'll go on another rant. Preaching. A vague, coded rant about what you should do with your life. That's what I do best. Vaguely give you some kind of indication of what you should do. If you're going into painting, you gotta sing. If you're planning on painting those... you know They got a very high standard in Beverly Hills. I hear you want to be a painter there. You want to be a house painter. But you gotta learn how to sing. Everything in Hollywood, it's just show tunes. Everybody there, it's the entertainment capital of the world. you got to have a... Even if you're doing something regular, even if you're a barista, a house painter, a plumber, even if you're a plumber, you got to learn how to sing. That's true, though. I went to some show there a few years ago. It was this performance where this guy who's a... I guess he's a well-known music producer, but he does these performances where he plays... Songs by request, so people can request anything and he 'll perform it on stage and he does some crazy improvised like multi layered version with all these loops and stuff. It was impressive, you know, just on a pure sonic level, just that he was able to do that, but it 's one of those things where he would go into a song and everybody in the crowd knew the lyrics and they would sing along in these very uh performative voices, very capable performative voices, and I realized oh yeah I'm in i 'm in mean, ellie i'm actually in Hollywood. It was in Hollywood, and I was like, I'm in Hollywood. Of course, they sing along to like every Queen song perfectly because they're all aspiring somethings. Oh, you're an aspiring something. You're an aspiring house painter. They're all aspiring Beverly Hills house painters. Believe me. But I'm going to follow that up, uh, follow all of that up uh, with uh, a song by Jim Burgett. Maybe it's Burgett. Jim Burgett. Jimmy Burgett. This is my friend Jimmy Burgett. Jimmy Birdshit. Yeah. Um. Jimmy Burgett with a song called "Let's Investigate." That seems like a good follow-up, though. You know, I'm talking about. Uh, that's the reason I was talking about how you know it takes some level of investigation to get into something, whether it's uh, being a wigger or getting into anime back before anime was all over the place. It took some level of investigation. And uh, that's a good quality to have. You've got to know how to be a scavenger. You've got to know how to be an investigator if you truly want to get into something. And even though now it's very easy to find the definitive list, you can get into something in a day. You can get into some weird, nuanced subculture or interest in a day. You can order everything you need to fit in. You can find all the knowledge that's needed, all the basic knowledge that's needed to be a part of some subculture or to have some niche interest. But it still requires some investigation to truly understand it and and to be honest about it. Because honesty is important, and you know we all have to fake it till we make it. But we also know inside when we are truly being honest about something, which is why I appreciate it when someone went all in about being a wigger. Or when someone goes all-in in some way that's going like to really destroy their reputation. Even if it destroys their reputation with just a certain group of people, there is that part of me that always respects people who go all-in. And there's a part of me that will always want to you know flagellate myself, to self-flagellate, to whip my own back, because I don't feel like I go, go all-in enough. But I do investigate. I do have to say, I do try. I do try to investigate. Believe me. So we have Jim Burgett here with Let's Investigate. And of course, it's about like some sleazy song, some sleazy song about like, let's go park at Lover's Lane and investigate each other. It's some, you know, sleazy dude. Who, he's one of these sleazy dudes who's just, he's like, let's investigate the human body. You know, it's one of those songs. But I've decided to be innocent about everything you know uh you know i'm i've decided to take everything you know just at face value and take everything very innocently and naively and uh, all innuendos are out the window innuendos are out and i'm just going to take things very literally and not read into things with some sort of like all the songs that people say you know that's about drugs you know it's about sex no i'm going to take it all very literally it's hard to take this song literally though you know it's it's quite clearly You know about some sort of sexual exploration, just kissing, kissing exploration. It's a kissing scene. It's a kissing scene. Nothing. All they do is kiss each other in this scene. Uh, But yeah, Jim Burgett with Let's Investigate. (laughs)
0: Come on,
7: baby, let's investigate.
1: Yeah yeah. Let's investigate. Yeah yeah. Why do we hesitate? Yeah yeah. Let's me and you find out. How you know what this love is all about. Yeah yeah. Let's investigate.
5: Yeah yeah. I'll pick you up at eight. Yeah yeah. We'll park in Lover's Lane and, love and then we'll investigate this love and game.
0: There's very little time to adjust to new situations I- at the speed of light. There's very little time to get accustomed to anything. One of the big uh, violent make- violence makers of, the, of, our, of our century has been radio. Uh, Hitler was entirely a radio man and a tribal man. And what does television do then to that tribal man? Well, I don't think Hitler would have lasted long on TV. Like Senator Joe McCarthy, he would have looked foolish. He was uh, a very hot character. And uh, like Nixon, made a, Nixon? Pro- made a very bad image on television. He was far too hot a character. Much better on radio or on, uh, on, yeah, on the movies. Not bad on the movies, which will take quite hot characters.
3: Yeah, hot characters. Hot characters are, you know, best for uh, radio and movies, but not TV. Oh, he's one of them hot characters. He's one of them hot characters. He's, uh, Hitler wouldn't, Hitler wouldn't have made it if he'd been on TV. Hitler just wouldn't have made it. He was a radio guy. I like that. I like that commentary. You don't hear that often. Everybody, when they talk about Hitler, they, you know, they they always have the same talking points. I like people just saying what I just heard there, which is uh, probably the result of a thorough investigation, really, which is that Hitler, he's a radio guy, not a TV guy. He wouldn't have made it. He's a hot character. He wouldn't have made it on TV. A hot character. If we could all, you know, be that. If we could all achieve that. I think Wiggers are hot characters. I think Wiggers are hot characters for sure. But uh, what do I know? I'm not a serious guy. Bob Moline with... I'm not a serious guy.
1: Represent the Ville, how I do. I just, check.
3: like, I feel more comfortable about what they're talking about, like, whatever they're
0: talking about.
1: I don't know how to explain it, man. It's just different. It's a way of life that I came into, and I just feel comfortable being in it because, like, it just feels like it, like, comes naturally or whatever. Like, it's just, it's easier for me to relate to them, and, like, to know like, white kids that are, like, kind of preppy.
2: I that,
7: that even though some of it is bad, that a lot of it's good that when they get older, they can look at the, when their kids, you know, come home with black friends or their son or daughter goes out with someone who's black, they'll look at it and they'll understand where they're coming
8: from. When the music.
2: Sorry. Sorry.
1: Sorry. Sorry. Too bad it has to end this way. I'm sorry I made you cry. But i told you so many times before Well I'm sorry I'm really 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 sorry But I'm just not a serious guy baby I'm sorry I ain't tell you that's not true because it wasn't so very long ago someone broke my heart in I have my reasons for telling you we're it and it's not to break someone else's heart that's the last thing I would do Well, I'm really sorry oh, Can't you see I'm sorry? i
0: a trend there's usually money and that's certainly the case in the music business 70% of all rap recordings are bought by white kids
3: not a serious guy Bob Moline just not a serious guy which can be really annoying you know when someone's incapable of being serious and I speak from experience. I mean, I've certainly been the person in situations who just doesn't take anything seriously in the moment. Meanwhile, everybody else is being very serious. And I've also been the person who wants to strangle the goofball who isn't being serious. So I feel like I've experienced both of those. I've been been the goofball who deserves to be strangled, and I've also wanted to strangle the goofball. Uh, I'm not a serious guy, though. He's obviously talking about relationships, but, you know, part of this show is taking the titles and lyrics out of context. It'd be a very boring show for me if I never took things out of context. But let's get away from that. Let's just go to actual serious music. Sincere and serious music. And this is going to be by Ray and Ina Patterson. And I always wonder, whenever there's these couples, especially when they're these kind of twangy, countryish. Uh, gospel-y sort of uh, duos where it's like Ray and Ina Patterson. Are they brother-sister? Are they husband and wife? Are they two people who are completely unrelated and happen to share the same last name? I don't know. What do you do in that situation? When you share the same last name as someone, would you go by Ray and Ina Patterson? Or would you go by Ray Patterson and Ina Patterson? At what point can you... Get mutual about a last name, do you have to have a relation uh, I guess it's I suppose it's just it's up to the individual. I don't think there's a rule about that, and uh because there's no rule, I don't know if this is a husband and wife duo or what they are. I think they are though I might be entirely wrong though though though, but uh it is beautiful and sincere music, and the first song is going to be called Beautiful Lost River Valley. And uh, it's, you know, perfectly active, but it's also, you know, sweeping. There's a there's a sweeping sensation that I get from it. Uh, but for something that's talking about a beautiful Lost River Valley, I'm glad there's some activity to it. It's not too slow. It's not just a slow gaze. There is some activity, activity levels there. Uh, you know what I like about your music is the activity levels there. People that have no idea what that means. Uh, But then the next song by them, it's going to be called Memory's Door. It's a good one. It's talking about living in the past, nostalgia. A topic that I like, that we like. I like to get plural on this show when I talk about things, and we like this. Just like how, you know, Ray and Ina Patterson, they're a we. Whether they're husband and wife, brother and sister, or not even related at all, they're nonetheless a we. We because they sang these songs together. I'm a we too. When I do this show, I become a we. It is me and the show, and we are a we. we are a we. And uh, beautiful Lost River Valley followed by Memory's Door. Just beautiful music. No context to uh, take these out of. They are exactly what they are.
2: to bear Though i offered words of comfort all your grief i could not share at my side you were so lonely ne'er could i your past restore memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: I feel like uh, we should probably start wrapping it up here now that we're about one hour, uh, ten minutes almost. And I'm going to close it out with a good message tune. Something that I consider to be a good message tune, and it goes back to that idea of, you know, mantras and just, uh, you know, trying to have a better outlook on things, or at least expressing that. Whether it describes the reality around you or not, uh, it does have an impact on your life, and the, and the lives of those around you too, of course. And uh, this is a, a very cheesy title, but I like it. And it's by the Dimensions, and it's a fairly well-known doo-wop group from the 60s. And they spelled it D-E-M. It's Dimensions, but it's D-E-M, which I find very dark, almost like demon, but not quite. It's more like demented, you know, it's D-E-M-E-N-S-I-O-N-S. I think I spelled that right. I think I spelled that right. Uh, but uh, Dimensions with D-E instead of D-I. I don't know. There's just something particularly dark about that, especially considering they were a pretty popular group, and I don't understand. I simply don't understand the Demented Dimensions. It's a Demented Dimension, but uh, this uh, song is not Demented. It's called Count Your Blessings Instead of Sheep. I like that because it's not just Count Your Blessings. It's not simply count your blessings. It's count your blessings instead of sheep. So you better stop counting sheep. Because counting sheep's what you do when you can't sleep. And that's just inherently negative. It's inherently you're bored. I mean, have you ever tried to do it? I haven't. I've heard of people doing it. I, I've, I remember as a kid, I, I, my friend's cousin told me he actually did try counting sheep. No, he didn't he actually didn't. <laughs> I remember the com I remember it now. He said we were standing around trying to figure out what to do. We were little kids and he goes, What are we gonna do? Sit around and count sheep. I just I think I took that to mean it was so old timey, first of all, when he said it, that I, I remember like interpreting that as him having counted sheep. I remember thinking, Oh, he 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 actually does try to count sheep when he goes to bed. Yeah, I don't think he actually He gave no implication that he actually does count sheep. I think I was just so taken aback by uh, the old-timey reference this kid made. What are we gonna do, sit around and count sheep? I feel like that's something a guy on a work site would say to a bunch of other workers who aren't really pulling their weight. What are you guys doing, sitting around counting sheep? Instead, it's a little kid. It's, uh, you know, that's To that kid, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. What are you going to do? Sit around and count sheep? You know, I feel like those go hand in hand. Are you going to sit around and count sheep and talk about it? Counting is talking. Counting is a form of talking. If you're counting out loud, it's not a very good conversation, but it's a form of counting. But count your blessings instead of sheep. Don't do both. Uh, The dimensions, demented dimensions... Counting blessings instead of sheep. How demented could that be? Demented enough to change the spelling of dimension. To change the dimensions of a dimension.
7: I just started cutting together random violent scenes done to all you need (laughs) is love. And also, coming out of a room and seeing massive amounts of people, shoulder to shoulder, stuck, not moving. Almost like Otacon. So I decided to go out the fire stairs. And as I'm going out the fire stairs... I end up in the lobby. I'm coming across the lobby and in, going in as I'm leaving the hotel is the fire, New York City Fire Marshal who shut down the convention 10 minutes after I left because they crammed 27,000 people into a space that's only supposed to hold seven. <laughs>
1: Matter, 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 matter.
2: Whoa, whoa! Oh yeah, get up. You better count them home! In. in.
7: story does. The one thing I prided in the early days of doing anime music videos was matching up songs that work with the images to tell stories.
0: The literate man is the natural sucker for propaganda. You cannot propagandize a native. You can sell him rum and trinkets, but you cannot sell him ideas. Therefore, propaganda is our Achilles heel. It's our weak point. We will buy anything if it's got a good hard sell tied to it.
8: This land is mine God gave this land So take my hand And walk this land with me And walk this lovely land with me Though I am just a man When you are by my side With the help of God, I know I can be strong. help of God, I know I can be strong to make this land our home. If I must find I'll fight to make this land our own, until